Welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. I'm one of the pastors here at Santa Cruz Baptist Church. My name is Tyler, and I'm with... Drew Cunningham. Uh, And today we're going to reflect a little bit on Drew's last sermon, closing out the book of Daniel from Daniel chapter 12, as well as just kind of think about what we learned uh, as we taught through and reflected on the book of Daniel for 12 weeks. Um, So Drew, why don't you start us off with uh, sort of the main point of your message, what you hoped people took away from Daniel 12? Yeah. So uh, the title of this week's sermon was Light at the End of the Tunnel, and um, I meant that kind of as a, a pun because we were finishing our series, but also uh, that is what the main point of Daniel chapter 12 is, that uh, after chapters 10 and 11, which are, are pretty dark uh, portraits of the future, there's light at the end of the tunnel, that there is hope for us uh, at the end of days. And specifically, Um, chapter 12 is broken up into two sections, verses 1 through 4, which kind of finish out the visions of chapter 10 and 11, and then verses 5 through 13, uh, where a couple of questions get asked. And so specifically, what I believe the main point of Daniel chapter 12 is, is there's hope for us that God is present with us in this world And most specifically, that there's hope in resurrection from the dead to eternal life. Yeah, I loved how in your message you pointed out, we often uh, bifurcate the Old and New Testaments. And so we can think of resurrection as just a New Testament phenomenon, Mm -hmm. but it's it's right there in in 12, I want to say verse 3. Yeah. So if that's what you wanted people to take away uh, from Daniel 12 and from your sermon... You've preached uh, eight messages, I think it was, from the book of Daniel. As you prepared, thought through those, uh, wrote those sermons, what did you learn uh, and what did you see as like major themes in the book of Daniel? Yeah, um, I I think one thing that I learned is that uh, God knows what he's doing, even in moments when it seems like things are out of control. Um, in our own lives, in our own world, that throughout the book of Daniel, you could, even from chapter one, say, what in the world is going on? God has lost. Um, His people are in exile, and uh, they're under the thumb of Babylon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from start to finish, we see these things that just on, on surface level seem like God is losing. Um, But yet time and time and time and time again, we're reminded in Daniel that God knows exactly what he's doing. And so I think if I had to say just one thing that I personally took away from the book of Daniel, it would be this, that um, when things don't seem to be going our way as Christians, uh, we could easily just hang our heads and mope and question God. but that is not what God wants us to be doing. He wants us to, to be asking the question um, in the midst of trial or even in the midst of persecution, um, God, what are you doing for your good and for your glory uh, in this situation? And again, um, there's just so many different examples of that in Daniel, uh, that God is faithful to them. They are faithful to God um, and he uses them in many different ways to display his goodness and his sovereignty 
um, and just his wisdom in all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a an amazing picture you get in the book of Daniel uh, of God. I think it's helpful to remember that um, we actually, we, we only get small kind of pictures of who God is in each individual book, mm-hmm. uh, but it's hard to read the book of Daniel, not walk away with an understanding of the sovereignty, right? Absolutely. Like he's, uh, from beginning to end, he's telling you what's going to happen, and then we're watching it play out uh, in history. Yeah, I think of even chapter one, it says, I'm trying to rewind here, uh, Daniel chapter one, starting in verse, uh, where is it? Okay, so starting in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mm -hmm. into his hand. Uh, Multiple times in in chapter 1 even, it it reminds us that the Lord's in control of all of this. He's Mm -hmm. sovereign even over his people being dragged off into Babylon. And, And so, yeah, his sovereignty is just present, um, even in the things that are happening to his people and in, uh, he's sovereign in, in saving his people multiple times throughout Daniel, whether it be from the lion's den or the, the fires, mm-hmm. um, he's sovereign over it all. Yeah. And I, I think that's a super interesting emphasis to put on it, knowing that, uh, people would have seen this as, like you said, as God losing, mm-hmm. uh, or um, as God betraying his people, two different possible outcomes. There's a story um, in the book of First Maccabees, I believe, and it's Alexander the Great comes to besiege Jerusalem after the events. Actually, it takes place during uh, what Daniel sees in the vision of, in chapter 11. Uh, as Alexander the Great comes and conquers Persia, there's a part of that where he conquers Jerusalem. There's a story that he actually offered at sacrifices at the Jerusalem temple after before invading Jerusalem, kneeling outside uh, the walls of Jerusalem and and praying to Yahweh saying, if you give me this city, I can worship you better than everybody in here put together. Uh, And it's just a fascinating notion because if you don't have a view of God's sovereignty, then the book of Daniel, the only two ways to interpret it are that God abandoned his people or God lost, Mm -hmm. Uh, which would mean that the gods of Persia, the gods of Babylon, the gods of Greece are ultimately going to be stronger than Yahweh. But the clear message of Daniel is that throughout all of this, God is in control. Yeah, so there's a, a text in John at the trial of Jesus that I'm going to reference actually on Easter this next weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is, is, you know, before Pilate, mm-hmm. and um, essentially Pilate says, I have authority over you. Mm-hmm. And what's Jesus's response? Uh, you only have the authority that, that is given to you. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, Jesus is saying, no, like, you don't ha- mm-hmm. have authority over me. Right. And I think that's a little bit the same um, to, to think about the book of Daniel in that way. Um, the only reason that these countries, whether it be Persia, um, mm-hmm. Medea, or, or Babylon, the only reason that they have authority over God's people is because God has given them authority right. for a small small period mm-hmm. of time. Yeah, so that actually leads into one of the things I took away as I was thinking about 
the messages I prepared. Uh, and actually, the Gospel Coalition uh, will post this article in the show notes, but they just ran uh, a great article the other day titled, uh, Put on Your Trifocals. Uh, trifocals. And the idea was uh, that if we have just a view of God's sovereignty, we miss so much of who God is. God's sovereignty is really important, but it's also important that we hold simultaneously his goodness and his wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just saw... Um, one, his wisdom in the book of Daniel as well, is you see God is moving all of these pieces around, sovereignly doing all of these things. Um, and one, it's just amazing to sit back and think about his sovereignty and how that's over big and small things. Mm-hmm. God is sovereign over small things. Um, the book of Proverbs, I'm trying to remember where it is. I want to say Proverbs 21.1 says that, uh, that Yahweh moves the hearts of kings mm-hmm. uh, like he's guiding a river with his hands. And so you see that kind of thing happen where God just makes these, you know, he is involved in the small inner workings of these kings' hearts, but that's going to move an entire kingdom to do yeah, so, so, so think about mm-hmm. that, uh, God's wisdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we read the book of Daniel, there's so many things that I know my own heart, I'm tempted to say, well, I wouldn't have done it like that. Right. <laughs> well, why is that? Because I'm not as wise as God. Mm-hmm. Um, God sees the the end from the beginning, Scripture tells us. Right. And so he's all wise, and he knows exactly the right way to do it. Um, and that's often in contrast to how I would have done it. And I think that's something we have to check ourselves in when we are tempted to question God and be like, God, why did you do it that way? Mm-hmm. Um, we're placing ourselves as all wise. We're actually placing ourselves in the seat of God. Um, he's all-knowing, and he's all-wise. Therefore, he does things the way he does them, mm-hmm. and, and he's good in that. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, when I was in seminary, I took a class from this philosopher who was regularly involved in debates with atheists, and um, one of the debates he had, uh, he was debating a pretty well-known atheist at the time, uh, and he argued that one of the reasons he didn't believe in God was because this is not the greatest possible world. Mm. Uh, and so one of the primary philosophical arguments people make a- about is, you know, if there's an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God, he would make the greatest possible world. And this atheist said, no, there's a lot of reasons why this isn't the greatest possible world. And uh, his uh, the person debating him who became my uh, professor, uh, just looked across at him and goes, okay, well, name one of the things you would have changed to make a better world. And there was a long pause, and then he just said, well, point taken, and shelved that point because he. one of the things is you don't know the outcome of everything. One of the things we mean when we say God is wise is that he, he knows not only everything in terms of his omniscience, but he knows how different outcomes will be affected through different things. And this philosopher couldn't say like, well, I would have changed this one thing right. about the world in order to produce this better outcome. So, you know, the the first semester philosophy student mm-hmm. always wants to argue at that point mm-hmm. that, well, if I were God, I wouldn't have created Hitler, mm-hmm. right? Um, they think that's a pretty good answer to mm-hmm. that. It sounds like a good answer on the surface. Right. But if you, you trace that to its logical conclusion, um, if, if you're God and you don't create Hitler, um, all of a sudden there's someone just a little bit less evil than Hitler mm-hmm. out there, and now you've got to decide that you shouldn't create them either. Right. His name's Stalin, by the guess, way. Guess where that ends up? Mm-hmm. With you. Yeah. Um, eventually you get to you. Like you you're, <laughs> you're next on the chopping block if you keep going down that, that line of thought. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, like 
there are, there is such a thing as evil in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that, um, God uses for his plan and for his purposes. And right. I think that's something that we have to keep, not in tension, but just in mind when we're thinking about God's sovereignty, his goodness, and his wisdom in, mm-hmm. in all things. Um, and we've talked about this before, but Genesis 50, we, we see this, like what it, the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, what you intended for evil... God intended or used for for good. Right. And so um, God sees the big picture, and that's not to deny the presence of evil, Mm -hmm. but it is to to say that he uses all things for um, our good and for his glory. Yeah. And that's why why the goodness is a really important thing to meditate on, is we can often, uh, when we hold God's sovereignty, if we're not simultaneously talking about his goodness, we can paint the picture of a really really negative picture of God. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, so we just had our membership class, uh, as well this weekend. And one of the things that we talked about there is that we are a church that is explicitly reformed in our teaching. So Mm -hmm. we, we regularly talk about God's election, God's sovereignty. Uh, we regularly talk about a reformed view of atonement and that, you know, those who are in Christ will persevere. And we, you know, and we reference sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, like we do all of those things. Um, but one of the things that we have to be really careful about, because so many uh, what are often called like cage stage Calvinists, like they forget one of the first places where Calvin started his institutes, which is with a long explanation of who God is as father. Mm-hmm. And I actually know the exact page on in my, uh, in my version of the institutes on page 47. And Calvin says, if we really got who God was as father, there would be no need of hell because nobody would actually sin. Because mm-hmm. if we understood what a good father he was, the mere thought of bringing shame upon him would keep us from sin. Right. And it's, he's such a good and amazing father that we have, to, we have to think about that in right proportion to his sovereignty and his wisdom as well. Yeah, that, so if he's a good father mm-hmm. and he's faithful and trustworthy and mm-hmm. all of those things... Um, it's a little easier to release your hands off of the wheel of sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? If you you know that you can trust him and you know that he's good, um, it's it's a lot easier to to say, all right, he can be in control because mm-hmm. he's those things, and right. I trust him in that. But if you you flip it and you assume that God is not all good, I totally understand having trouble saying that he's sovereign because mm-hmm. if he's if he's sovereign and he's all powerful. Um, but he's not good, uh, that is scary. Right. Um, what we have is a dictator at that mm-hmm. point, and mm-hmm. that's not who God is. Right. But starting with his goodness, um, it's a lot easier to understand and get to sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's really important to hold all of those intention, well, not intention, because they're not things that contradict each other, but hold the, them all at the same time, mm-hmm. which is why one of the things I was thinking about uh, while teaching and preparing uh, and meditating on the book of Daniel was if somebody was going to read or study the book of Daniel now, I think I would recommend to them that they spend, uh, while they're studying the book of Daniel, they spend time meditating on Psalm 19 and Psalm 34. Because Psalm 19 is going to give you this picture of God and his revelation uh, that's going to tell you the content of scripture so that you can trust it because it's it's better than pure gold, even gold refined by the fire. And, you know, it's righteous altogether. And so, you know, you can trust his word. And then you turn to Psalm 34 and 
and you meditate on, so taste and see that the Lord is good Mm -hmm. and that his children will not suffer want uh, in terms of the things eternal. And so when you have those two Psalms set alongside the book of Daniel, you really get that whole trifecta of uh, sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness. Yeah. And we're starting to sound like a broken record here, Mm -hmm. but this is another pitch for why biblical theology is so Mm -hmm. important, that... um, not just those two Psalms, but reading Daniel in light of the rest of Scripture mm-hmm. um, is so vital and so important that uh, we would never recommend someone just start in the book of Daniel and only read the book of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniel is meant to be read as a part of the story as a whole. Right. And so um, if you only read Daniel, you might end up with only God's sovereignty. Hopefully not, but you might. Um, but it'd be really hard to do that if you're reading Daniel in light of the rest of the story. Right, right. And when we read the entire story, and this is why it's so important not to skip over the Old Testament. Um, you know, I, th- I always think in terms of uh, there are all sorts of debates over, you know, somebody becomes a new believer, that's an amazing thing, and you give them a Bible, where should they start reading? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in starting with the book of Genesis. Also, you know, if you're just reading straight through and you hit Leviticus pretty early on, that might be, you know, a bit of a struggle. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom in starting in Matthew. But as we grow, we realize we need the Old Testament so much because we get so much of our picture of who God is in the Old Testament. Totally. Um, and if we, if we just... Uh, and the other reason for reading the Old Testament is because we get that character of God. If we let other people, like non-Christians, define the Old Testament for us, and so we go, yeah, there's an angry God in the Old Testament, and then there's Jesus in the New Testament. If we let uh, non-Christians who will read the Bible that way, if we let them define who God is for us, we're going to miss so much of God's good revelation. And I think just there's so many parts of the New Testament that Without the Old Testament, you're kind of reading the New Testament in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever you add the Old Testament, it becomes color. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going through the book of Mark and have been for, for a while now. Um, and there's just so many things in Mark chapter one alone that if you are, are reading Mark chapter one through the lens of Exodus, mm-hmm. um, it just pops and there's yeah. like, there's color there that uh, you would never see without understanding Exodus. Right, right. Uh it might be good just to think about, before we wrap up, um, the question of God's goodness in the midst of the darkness. You touched on this a little bit in uh, several of your sermons, in, in the Daniel 12 one in particular. But So we've talked about God being sovereign, wise, good. Uh, I preached on Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 11. Um, those are very dark chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Daniel is being given visions or prophecies of things where the people of Israel are going to have a really tough time for decade after decade after decade after decade. Mm -hmm. So I think actually one of the big issues is not that people disbelieve God's goodness, but that they find it hard to see in the midst of the darkness. Mm -hmm. So what what would you say to somebody who uh, comes to that struggle? Because it's not just Daniel and it's not just world leaders. It's all of us in the midst of, um, you know, say struggles with our kids, uh, say bad news from a doctor, um, all sorts of things can bring up the question of like, God, are you still good to me in the midst of this thing? Yeah, I think... Ultimately, um, there's no better place to, to point than the cross. Mm-hmm. That when we think through just the problem of evil in general or the specific question you just asked, um, we'd be tempted to look at the cross and say that it was the darkest moment in history. Mm-hmm. 
probably was. Yeah. Not just because the sun got blotted out. Right. Really well, but. <laughs> um, but yet, um, when we're able to peel back the curtain and understand all of redemptive history, we understand that that was simultaneously the darkest and the greatest moment in history. Mm-hmm. That Jesus, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, uh, who was perfect in every single way and innocent, um, was brutally killed on a Roman cross. Mm-hmm. Um, horrible moment. And yet, uh, because of that, that's how we can be saved, that mm-hmm. he died in our place. Um, he was a ransom for many. Um, he abs- absorbed fully the just wrath of God on our behalf. And so, um, you know, I think there are so many different things throughout biblical history and in the story of redemption that are dark mm-hmm. and we don't want to shy away from those. Um, but knowing that when we zoom out, God has a plan in the midst of those. And there's a, a quote here. Um, it, it says, peace isn't found in the absence of problems. True peace is found in the presence of God. And I think that's true that in the darkness, um, it's so tempting to just be, to say, where are you, God? Mm-hmm. Um, but often in the darkness, we're able to experience the presence of God more yeah. and to even cling to him more than we would have in the light. Mm-hmm. And so I just think there's things that God is doing in those moments that we might not even be able to see in those moments, mm-hmm. uh, but he's doing something and learning to trust him in that uh, is really important and vital for our discipleship as Christians and our sanctification. Yeah. Yeah. I always think when a question like that arises, it's so important to have a view of life that is eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis paints this picture in the book, The Great Divorce, as what would um, what would the smallest vices or virtues look like if you map them not onto a life that lasted 75 years, but a life that, a life that lasted millennia. Mm-hmm. And he says, all of a sudden, your little anger that Jesus is poking at in the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't look so little if you let that anger fester for a thousand upon thousand upon thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, if we seek the good things of God, I think of it, you know, Philippians 4, 8, set your mind on what is pure, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is just. If there's anything commendable, excellent. Like if we set our mind on those things, we might make only incremental incremental changes over the next couple of decades, but map that out into centuries and you're going to have a much more godly life in eternity. And one of the reasons why I point that out is because the same thing is true with our interactions with God, like you said, uh, in terms of being in God's presence and and experiencing his peace. So many of the dark things I think we experience are there to teach us something. And I don't mean then what our goal is to, is to learn the lesson really quickly so we can get through it. Mm -hmm. I think actually that you can't do that. It's God knows because he is wise and good, knows how long you need to sit in a particular circumstance in order to learn the lesson he's trying to teach you. Right. So your first inclination when you're experiencing darkness or trial Mm -hmm. Um, is not to say, well, God must not be good because mm-hmm. this is happening. Uh, knowing that God's good in the midst of that um, and trusting him in that is, is vital. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to, to kind of close out um, both the book of Daniel and our podcast today, um, what we hope that you've seen and we hope you've enjoyed throughout the, the sermons and the podcast is this, that the book of Daniel repetitively 
uh, points to Jesus Christ. And that is the perspective that, that we're going to preach each book that we preach, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And we hope that this has been encouraging for you to see how Jesus is, is clearly portrayed in each chapter of Daniel and to see how the gospel is present in each chapter of Daniel, um, that it's not just a New Testament thing, um, but Jesus is foreshadowed and um, there's echoes of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, even in chapters like Daniel 6 in the lion's den. And so we hope that uh, this has been a good, helpful hermeneutic for you as you study the book of Daniel and as you read the whole Old Testament altogether. And so um, if you guys have questions or comments or just want to send us a, an email to let us know what your favorite part of Daniel is, we'd love to hear it. You can send us an email at office at santacruzbaptist.com. We thank you guys for tuning in, and we will see you again next week. See you next week. Have a happy Easter.